Hey out there in podcast land, this particular episode required, I felt like, a warning, a sort of, I hate this word, but trigger warning, uh, even prior to the intro. If, for whatever reason, sexual assault, things like that are particularly triggering to you, this may not be the episode for you. This one was even tough for me to record. It was particularly heinous, so anyway, again, buckle up if, uh, or turn back now if this is, if sexual assault and things like that are particularly triggering. Welcome to Coffee and a True Crime Dumpster Fire. This is a true crime podcast. That's right, a true crime podcast. For those in the back, I'll say it a little bit louder. This is a true crime podcast. This show is a show for grown folks. That little E over there next to my podcast, that means that we use some foul language every once in a while. Just every once in a while. Enough to flag it, you know. So, we talk about really generally vile, disgusting, and horrific things. Dismemberment, disembowelment, death in general. Lots of really horrible, terrible things. But we also, like I said, we cover the three key things that everybody in life enjoys. Coffee, true crime, and of course, dumpster fires. So settle in, come get warm by the dumpster fire. Make sure don't touch it, though. Don't want you to get burned. Don't want to get sued. Just saying. But, again, all kidding aside, you have been warned. Turn back now if you don't like that kind of thing. And, by the way, I like my coffee black and my tea in the harbor. If you don't get that reference, you need to go ahead and turn back now. Otherwise, settle in and enjoy this week's episode of coffee and a true crime dumpster fire. Hey everybody, welcome once again for about the fifth, the five millionth time to coffee and a true crime dumpster fire. I'm your host, the mysterious Mr. C. As I, well, you wouldn't hear it, but I've edited edited it so many times it's ridiculous. But this particular case, this is your trigger warning, folks. This is the Gainesville Ripper. For those of you that don't know, this case involves sexual assault and some other things. It is horrific. I mean, beyond the normal, well, not beyond the normal, define normal, right? But this particular case is, for whatever reason, I, I, I burned all the way through the episode. I recorded it once and I didn't like it. I recorded it again, didn't really like it. And so now, for the third official time, I'm going through. And going to attempt to record this episode, and it's it's super. Again, if you are triggered by things like sexual assault, things like that, do not listen. You will not hurt my feelings. I promise. I promise. No hard feelings. It's okay. You can turn back now. Again, this is your trigger warning. I'll put another one at the beginning of the episode with the intro, but this is definitely your trigger warning. Please. Turn back now. Okay, is that everybody? I'll, I'll give a 
a brief moment. Three, two, one. Okay. All right. So if you're still here, then uh, welcome as always. And of course, we'll talk about the coffee of the week. The coffee of the week this week was Barney's Mocha Truffle. I gave it three out of five. Not really a big fan of the, you know, flavored coffees and stuff. This one, I was able to, usually I can't, I can't even hardly choke them down. I was able to actually drink this one. It wasn't too bad. Again, three out of five, eh. It tasted kind of like somebody spilled some grenadine or maybe melted some cherry, cherry cordials. Ugh. Tongue tied into some grocery store instant coffee. So there you have it. Go try it out. Uh, now, on with the story, right? That's what he says. So I'm actually going to start in with a murder in Shreveport, Louisiana. I always do that. It irritates a lot of people that I do that. Louisiana. I don't say it like a normal human being. <clears throat> and I'm not even Cajun. Um, anyway, so in... On November 4th, 1989, William Grissom, age 55, his daughter Julie, age 24, and this is, again, this is why this, this is part of why this case is so, for whatever reason, has been so tough for me to tread through. Again, I, uh, really, this, it's one thing to hear it told, it's one thing to have read about it and seen the TV shows and all those things, it's a whole nother animal to uh, actually spew it back out to someone. So bear with me. Um, <clears throat> so again, we're, we're William Grissom, age 55, his daughter Julie, age 24, and then the grandson, Sean, age 8. Uh, you know, kids, that really bothers me. It really does. Anyway, um, they're all stabbed to death in their Louisiana home, and this case went unsolved for a while. Um, but it was it, the key here is that they were taken by surprise while they were eating dinner. Taken by taken by surprise being key. Uh, Julie, though, was the sort of I guess linchpin you could call it. <clears throat> um, this is th this is why it's important. So Julie had actually been mutilated, cleaned, and posed. Remember that. We'll come back to it. Um, so, <clears throat> then we'll jump forward to August of 1990, when, and, to and we'll jump over to uh, College Town, USA, right? Gainesville, Florida. And as everybody knows in the last part of August, first part of September, things are really kicking off. You got everybody trying to move into the dorms and do all that fun stuff that college kids do. You know, mom and dad getting their kids ready in the dorms, all that kind of stuff. Everybody checking out the campus, their classes, all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's usually a happy, fun time for everybody. It's, a, it's an exciting time, especially in a college town uh, around around major, especially around major universities like University of Florida. Uh, they're in Gainesville. And Gainesville is, you know, college town USA, right? And so on August 24th, you know, school year's getting kicked off and everything. They're all getting settled into student housing and all that kind of stuff when freshmen Sonia Larson and Christina Powell are brutally stabbed to death in their apartment. 
The killer noticed Powell first, sleeping soundly on the couch in, in downstairs in the apartment, but he wanted to make sure nobody else was in the house. So he meandered his way upstairs to where Larson was sleeping in a bedroom. He taped her mouth shut in order to stifle any screams. And Larson actually put up a pretty decent fight and was killed during all the struggle. So then he works his way back downstairs to Powell. He taped Powell's wrists behind her back, taped her mouth shut, and then he used his K-bar knife. For those that don't know, a K-bar knife, I won't go into much detail, but think Rambo knife, right? Uh, survival knife, right? The big giant, uh, if you were a male and grew, if you were a Gen X male, you probably had one of these, or at least one of your friends had one. Uh, had the hollow handle, the compass on the the ball compass on the end, and the hollow handle for the like fishing line and hooks and all that stuff. It you know it's a survival knife, Rambo. Think think Rambo. Um. So anyway, he used his and it's a Marine Corps brand sort of. It's the it's the um. I, it's it's an icon to Marines. It's icon a, a K bar knife is something that's iconic to Marines. Um, kind of like them eating crayons. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so he used that K-bar knife to cut off all of her clothes, and then he brutally raped her. Again, the sexual assault thing. Sorry, I apologize. Um, he forced her to the floor face down, stabbed her repeatedly in the back. Then this asshole decided that he was going to take the time to pose the bodies in a sexually suggestive manner. And then <clears throat> he felt like he had the time to uh, to take a shower prior to leaving the apartment. So then we're on to the morning of August 25th, 1990, the next, next day. Uh, the killer breaks into Christina Hoyt's apartment. And he pried open a sliding glass door. Nobody's home. So he waits. Uh, and then at 11 a.m., 18-year-old Christina Hoyt comes home, and she's ambushed by the killer who had been hiding in the shadows. He immediately places Christina in a chokehold to subdue her, using duct tape to restrain her, and he leads her into a bedroom, cuts off all her clothes, and rapes her. Um, this one, however, was different, because he forced her face down like the other, and stabbed her in the back. And actually, he ruptured her aorta. Um, which, for anybody that knows anything, uh, your aorta, like, all of your blood goes through the aorta, right? That's like the major spot in your heart. And um, if, you, if, if your aorta ruptures for whatever, for a medical reason, or your whatever, in this case, what, but... If your aorta ruptures, you are dead before you hit the floor. Um, unless you're, like I said, the, the only exception, you're not going to survive that. It's just not a survivable uh, occurrence. Unless you happen to be already cut open on the operating table. And obviously this was not the case with uh, Christina Hoyt. So he flipped her over. This is why it's different, right? Um, so he flipped her over. And he cut her from pubic bone to breastbone, almost like a like an autopsy. 
Ugh. Creepy. So, and, and then at some point after arriving back to his base of operations, I guess. I guess that's the word for it, huh? I don't know what you would call it. I guess home, campsite, whatever. Um, the killer realizes, oh, I lost my wallet at the victim's house. Oh, if it were only that simple, right? So he goes back. And nobody's found the body yet, yada, yada. Well, not yada, yada, but nobody's found the body yet. So he decapitates his victim and takes her head, puts it... Again, he had posed her in a sexually suggestive manner, and he took the head and placed it on a shelf in such a manner that it was looking... At the corpse of Miss Hoyt. Of course, at this point now, the people in Gainesville, all of the students at UF, etc., they're all losing their minds. Oh my God, right? Campus safety, everybody, they're just going nuts. Obviously, we've got a serial killer on the loose and school's starting. We're bringing extra people to Gainesville that normally aren't here. What perfect timing, right? So then... Everybody starts to change habits and do the buddy system. Nope, you know, a lot of students, you know, and, and the university gracefully allowed them to just pick up and withdraw and things with no penalties at all, which is probably a good thing. Uh, but everybody, uh, you know, people are withdrawing, dropping classes, doing all this stuff, changing their habits, sleeping and being in, in huge groups of people, um, Real panic had kind of set in. So, at this point, like I said, everybody's changing their habits. You know, they're they're varying their habits, which you should do anyway. You know, friendly uh, neighborhood from your neighborhood, friendly whatever, friendly friendly advice. That's what it is, right? Um, so on August twenty seventh, he uh, broke into. Uh, using, of course, what is, seems to be his favorite method. Um, so using his favorite method uh, of entry, prying open a sliding glass door with a screwdriver, he gets into the residence of Tracy Polis and Manny Taboda, another male. Hmm. This time, of course, he finds a dude asleep in a bedroom, Manny Taboda. Now... Um, Manny Tabota put up a huge fight. I think that he woke this dude up and they got into a fight. More to come on that, though. So Tracy Polis, she hears this struggle. And uh, is like, go, goes to check it out. You know, let's, let's see what's going on. You hear, you, you hear a wrestling match or something, you know, people drop something or things like that. You kind of want to know what the hell's going on, right? So she goes in there, what's going on? And, you know... I don't, I don't know what she said, but uh, of course she hears this struggle. It's like, what's going on? And then she sees, oh my God, whatever. So then she runs and barricades herself in her bedroom. Danny, uh, um, I say Danny, but we don't know who he is yet. Spoiler alert, his name is Danny. Sorry. Anyway, so the killer breaks down the door. He binds, rapes, and murders um, 
uh, Tracy Polis. Paulus, P P A U L E S. If I mispronounce these names, I apologize. I am not an et- an entomologist. Look that one up. Um, an etym- etymologist, not ent e t etymologist. That's the study of words. Uh, he posed Paulus, but never moved to Boda. Well, why didn't he move to Boda? Because he was a dude. And he wasn't intended to be a victim, necessarily. He wasn't, like, planned. Uh, he didn't fit the profile, right? And I say profile because all of the women were the same. The women. They were petite, white brunettes. So that takes us back now. Now cops are really confused, right? So then we enter, so initially, the Gainesville police had two suspects, neither of which played out. Um, the first, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to name either one of the suspects, the original suspects, because they're not the killer. Spoiler alert, right? Uh, but the first two suspects were... Uh, Never really came anything of him, except for the one guy. Uh, and I'm not going to name, and I'm not naming either suspect, not because the information isn't out there, because it certainly is, but because they were cleared, first of all. First and foremost, they were cleared, so they don't, we don't need to talk about them now. It's all said and done. Uh, shocker, the correct person was put to death in Florida State Prison, but neither here nor there. Yet. Uh, but, so, the, the one guy, though, um, he became, like, the poster child for these murders. So that's especially why I'm not going to name this guy especially, right? Because, I mean, he was, again, he became their, their utter, their absolute poster child. They poster, they plastered his face everywhere. And this dude, unfortunately truly looked like a monster. He'd been in a horrific car crash and was, I mean, badly disfigured. So he literally looked like a I mean, he looked horrific. Uh, so, again, they, they looked, those people, those two guys, they went through enough. If you want to look their names up, feel free, but I'm not going to give them to you. They are easy enough to find, right? Murderpedia, for example. Uh, just saying. Um, anyway, so, <clears throat> after they go through all those, uh, investigator Don Maines from FDLE, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, sort of like the Florida's version of the FBI, only better, just my humble opinion. Anyway, so, um, investigator Maines, uh, was tipped off and, and went down and, and found this, again, this murder in 1989 in November uh, there in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, and uh, went down there and discussed the case and some of the similarities between Gainesville and theirs. So remember, this is like the late 80s and early 90s, so DNA is definitely not what it is today. 
the best they could do at that point was really just kind of know enough. It only really advanced enough to know that they both that both killers had type B blood. Uh, and what really turned them though to uh, Danny Rowling, dun dun dun, there it is, the winner, right? Danny Rowling, the killer, uh, the Gainesville Ripper. What really turned the investigators to Danny Rowling was that uh, Shreveport resident Cindy Jurassic, or Jurassic, again, not an entomologist, J U R A C I C H, Jurassic, I don't know, Jura, anyway. She called Crime Stoppers. I apologize for mangling that name, but she called Crime Stoppers and she turned them on to Danny Rowling. Uh, he had spent a bunch of time with her and with Jurassic and her then husband. The three of them attended the same church in Shreveport, Louisiana, um, where Danny had and then Danny had spent a lot of evenings with the couple. You know, hanging out, whatever. But over time, he made some really creepy revelations and comments about obsessions with knives and stabbing people. Hmm. Sound familiar yet? What do you think? Are we on to something? Where'd you park the squad car, Dick Tracy? At the time, she didn't think much of it. But then she heard the news story out of Gainesville. And she, she kind of stewed on it for a little while, I guess. And then eventually, though... She remembered him saying, she recalled him making this rather incriminating statement. And, well, it's more of a prophetic statement, I guess, because it happened before the murders. But anyway, so one day I'm going to, this is a quote. She quoted Danny as saying, One day I'm going to leave this town and go where the girls are beautiful, and I can lay in the sun and watch beautiful women all day. Well, he didn't just want to watch them, but anyway. Uh, so now, of course, they have they figure out, based on this, that Danny Rowling is already in jail. Yes, folks, that's right. The mystery man. Uh, after they they start digging into Danny Rowling, and they, then they discover that he's actually in custody. In the Marion County Jail, just south of Gainesville, he was arrested for an armed robbery in Ocala on September 7th, 1990. So that's when all of the dots start to get connected, right? Because he had a history of armed robberies, and investigators realized that a bank had been robbed the same day that Christina Hoyt's body was discovered. So they go digging into the evidence locker. What do they find? What do you think they found? Anybody? Bueller. Bueller. Anybody? 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 I'll tell you what they found. They found a gun, a screwdriver, tools that match tool marks found at the Gainesville murder scene. Again. Um, a bag of money. And the creepiest item in that whole thing, they found some cassettes and whatever, but the creepiest item was a tape recorder. So this guy had been, by the way, they had uh, been living, this guy had been living like in the woods 
near the near some of the student housing areas at UF. That should be that right there. Again, where'd you park squad car Dick Tracy? Because that should be a clue, right? I mean, wow. Whew. So anyway, so uh, one of the creepier items, though, that was found with all of his stuff was a tape recorder, like an old school. Again, if you're if you're a Gen X kid and maybe an early millennial, uh, you remember seeing these things in school. Even it's like those the they're kind of rectangular. They have the series of buttons on the bottom. And a big giant speaker on one end, right? That was that would face if you set it if you set this recorder on the table, the speaker would face up. The kind of thing that you used to record all your favorite songs off the radio. Yes. If you know, you know. Uh, anyway, so they found one of these recorders at the campsite. And not only that, but they found a bunch of cassettes that were uh, at the campsite there. And they there were recordings of quote unquote original Danny Rolling music, as well as a, a sort of audio diary where he cryptically discussed the murders themselves. What kind of what what kind of well, obviously right, but why? What what get? I mean, never mind. I'm not going to ask that question. I don't want to know the answer because here I am recording myself telling stories about. Anyway, <laughs> oh, but wait, you are just as guilty because you're listening. All right, so we're all on the same page, right? And none of us have committed any murders, so we're good. Uh, anyway, so he, ultimately in, in November of 1991, he was charged with the murders in Gainesville. Uh, uh, and, and this music that he, that he did was creepy as hell. I'm going to actually, I'll play a clip for you. Uh, hopefully it works, and we'll find out, huh? Um, here we go. This is him, this is the actual Gainesville Ripper singing a song. This is like the actual recording, by the way. All right, so hopefully that plays out. We'll see. Um, it looks like it, it may not, the quality is awful. Uh, so if it played great, if not, I apologize. There's a bunch of dead space, uh, or we may just have to cut it out. We'll just edit editing, right? Editing is awesome. Yes, editing is awesome because, as again, the through the magic of editing, I was gone for another whole hour. What do you know, right? So, they ultimately they end up charging him with these murders, and it took until that was in November of 1991. It took until 1994 to go to trial, and he actually claimed he wanted to be a superstar. Like Ted Bundy. Now, notice, it took three years, almost three years, almost three, nearly three years, two and a half years 
for this jackass to go to trial. Right before the trial begins, and like right before the trial's set to begin, this dude actually jumps up and spontaneously pleads guilty. Just, I did it. Your Honor, I did it. Yo, right here, I did it. This guy. I, uh, of course, I don't think he did it like that, but anyway. So they jumped to the penalty phase in April or April 20th, 1994. And he was sentenced to death. Cool, right? Should have got the electric chair, but I eh, got the needle. You know, the electric chair is inhumane. Yes. I'll show myself out, right? Anyway, so on October 25th, 2006, Danny Rawling was put to death for the murders of Christina Hoyt, Susan Powell, or no, I'm sorry, Christina Powell, Susan Powell, wrong, wrong Powell, who, wrong Powell, Sonia Larson, Christina Powell, Christina Hoyt, Tracy Pullis, and Manny, Manny Taboda. Uh, he was sentenced to death. I, again, he was put to death um, on October 25th, 2006. So, a couple of little interesting little tidbits about that day. This dude ate a... Uh, his last meal was lobster tail. Mmm, yummy. Shrimp and lobster tail. Really? This is what these guys get, right? Ugh. Should be what do you want on your tombstone? Anyway. Again, weird uh, Gen X reference. If you know, you know. But what do you want on your tombstone? So, he did give, uh, right before his execution, he did hand his spiritual advisor a written confession to those murders I spoke of at the very beginning in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, shortly, again, shortly before he was executed, he gave that note, what a, a written confession to the his spiritual advisor. I like that. Why not call them what they are? Uh, priests, whatever, spiritual advisor. It's so generic. I don't know. Anyway, um, so he was pronounced dead at 6.13 p.m. So this kind of dispels some rumors or some, not rumors, but some myths, I guess, if you will, about uh, executions and how they happen at midnight because they got to have a full 24 hours because the governor might call and these things. Uh, so there's some sources that say he sang some sort of song, some sort of hymn or something. Uh, as he was being executed or right before his execution. And then there are others that say he offered no final words and whatever and just went quietly off into the into the sunset. Uh, I, I can't confirm which actually occurred, so I'll give you both endings because, well, I wasn't there. So, again, pronounced dead. Again, executions don't happen at midnight, especially in Florida. They don't happen at midnight. It's a whole process. You know, the governor has to sign the death warrant. It's not something that the judge signs where, you know, at the end of, you know, you've been sentenced to death. Oh, sign your death warrant. Right, and smack the gavel and away they go and the judge signs the death warrant. No. The 
governor has to sign that death warrant, uh, has to sign off on that death warrant. And at that time, when the governor is generally uh, set for a date, generally, you know, several months, it's, it's set for a date way in advance. But it is set for a date, not 24 hours ahead of time, etc. That, that's all sort of myth. So, again, they're not killing him at midnight. He has plenty of time for appeals. There's plenty of time, et cetera, for the governor to call. Uh, even at times the governor himself shows up. It happens. Not very often, but it happens. So, there you have it. That's the story of the Gainesville Ripper. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Leave a comment. Uh, that's how we get noticed. Comment on Good Pods, on... Apple Podcast, on Podbean, on Spotify. Hey, oh, by the way, Spotify, you can't leave a comment yet, but you can rate it. Even if you just rate it one star, that's okay with me. It makes me better. Leave comments. Do engage, people, please. Engagement is what gets us noticed. Again, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. By the way, always remember, everyone loves a good murder story as long as they're not the victim.